Hello, and thank you for listening to this latest episode of Freewheeling. I'm your host, Abby Mickey, and I'm here for another episode that is a little bit different than the usual chat with Lauren about the news, jump into some interviews kind of podcast. So since we're mere weeks away from what will hopefully be a really, really exciting block of racing in 2020, I know we all miss racing a ton. I personally have been watching the virtual Tour de France, and I'm not going to lie, I want to love it. I love Zwift so much, but I definitely miss real racing and the passion and the facial expressions and knowing which riders are which based on their body language and stuff like that, reading more into the race, understanding the tactics a little bit more. I think for Zwift racing, it is really, really interesting and the tactics are really different. And I'm interested in how the tactics work and most of all the power-ups that they use and what each one means and how each one can be beneficial. But I definitely am missing real racing and we're getting really, really close to when we will be able to watch it again. So this week is a little bit different. I did not call upon Lauren today to discuss the news. Don't worry. We will dig into all the news going on right now in our next episode, or maybe even drop a mini episode of news later on. But I wanted to talk this week with someone who Australians might know and everyone around the world should should know because she's doing really amazing stuff. If you're interested in adventure riding or long distance riding, cross country riding, like literally crossing countries on your bike, Kate Leeming is, for lack of a better term, a cycle expeditionist. Expeditioner? That's a word, right? Um, From Australia, she lives in Melbourne and she does these incredible cross-country race rides um, where she goes across literal countries. So she's ridden across Siberia. She's ridden across the Arctic of Canada. She's ridden the skeleton coast of Namibia. And every single one of these expeditions has a humanitarian project linked with it. It's all under her banner of breaking the cycle. And before I start talking about racing for the rest of the year, I wanted to highlight Kate in this episode really quickly because she is just an incredible person and all this stuff she's doing is really cool. And so this is going to be just an episode with me and Kate talking about her and what she does. Before I call on Kate, this week's episode is brought to you by Ossos of Switzerland and their new Diora RS Women's Race Collection. The line for summer 2020 is highlighted by an aero short sleeve jersey and matching bib shorts, ensuring a more comfortable, stable ride using their lightest, fastest fabrics and new female-specific race fit. Head on over to us.ossos.com to find out more or visit your local Ossos dealer to see the kit in person. Thank you to Asos for sponsoring this week's episode. Now, let's get into it. So, Kate, hi. How's it going? That's great. Great. I'm in lockdown here in Melbourne, and um, um, but still, no, it's not bad. We're fine, adapting to the conditions. <laughs> 
Yeah. So before we jump into what we're we're talking about today, I just want for anybody who doesn't know you um, or isn't familiar with your breaking the cycle and expeditions and stuff that you've done, what is your what is your speed dating bio? <laughs> I guess you could call me an expedition cyclist, an explorer or an adventurer who uses the bicycle as my tool for adventure. And, um, you know, I, I began cycling. Um, I mean, I used to just cycle for fitness and really enjoyed it. But then when I traveled to Europe, I it, it became my way of seeing Europe. So I cycled 15,000 kilometers through Europe as my personal discovery over a couple of years. Um, that was a long time ago. Actually, I hate to say it, but it started 30 years ago doing that. Uh, and then um, uh, one thing led to another, and then I sort of have three major long expeditions. Um, the first uh, was came the first woman to cycle from St. Pe- from, from, uh, St. Petersburg to Vladivostok across Russia back in 1993, aiding the children affected by the Chernobyl disaster. And then I did a 25,000-kilometer journey through my own country, uh, including 7,000 k's actually off-road on remote desert tracks, which is called the Great Australian Cycle Expedition. That was in 2004-05. Uh, then that led to organizing uh, Breaking the Cycle in Africa, which was a 22,000-kilometer journey from Africa's most westerly tip in Senegal to its most easterly tip in Somalia in a continuous line. So that was exploring the causes and effects of extreme poverty and specifically the positives and trying to create a positive story about Africa. Um, I wrote a book about uh, uh, Australia called Out There and Back. I wrote a book about Africa called Njinga and created a, a, a film, a feature film, and there's still a series to come. And then after all of that, um, I... Um, I've been planning for the last few years to cycle across Antarctica, so across the continent via the South Pole. So a minimum of 1,800 kilometres, or it could be 2,700 kilometres, depending on which route I take. Um, And so over the last uh, five years, six years, I've been um, doing training expeditions to actually get my skills up because I'm great in the heat and I love the deserts, but I'm not so good in the extreme cold and that's probably probably my weakness so um i facilitated the uh development of the very first all-wheel drive fat bike with an american uh engineer called steve christini and um so i've actually got five of these bicycles right now (laughs) um uh, so i've done uh, several of those uh sorry four polar expeditions to to get my skills up and on top of that uh, I've been doing an expedition on each continent now to train for Antarctica. So those are either in polar or in sand or at altitude. Um, so I've pretty much done all of them by getting cut short in my South American expedition because of COVID. Um, so I'm ready for Antarctica. That's about it. Nice. And and yeah, you mentioned your bike a little bit. And Ian Trelore, my favorite cycling tips writer, no offense, everyone else, <laughs> um, wrote a piece last week about your bike. So I want to hear a little bit about how you discovered the guy who makes your bike and, and kind of the process of how how the bike has evolved over all of your um, prep preparations for the 
um, the South Pole expedition? Sure. Well, when I first looked into seeing whether cycling across Antarctica is a, is a possible dream, I went to the US in particular because in Australia we don't really have to deal with the cycling in the extreme cold, but obviously in the US they do. And I came up, uh, there was a bike engineer whom I met and we discussed building frames and different things. And then he suggested have a look at um, Steve Christopher's technology. This, it's, it's, it's an all-wheel drive bicycle um, where it has a, a, um, a beveled gear opposite the drivetrain, opposite the hub. And then basically there's a shaft drive that runs to the head tube and then crosses over and drives a rod which runs parallel to the front uh, front fork and drives the front wheel. And I was looking at this and thinking that's the, that's the only design I've seen that looks to be um, robust enough for the kind of conditions that I need. And um, so I tracked Steve down and pitched the idea that that I thought it might be worth trying to put his – he'd only ever made the, the um, technology for a normal mountain bike. And I was thinking, well, if you put that in a fat bike, uh, fat bike obviously having the flotation with the tyres is probably the most important thing of all. And so if we can put that in to, to include the widest tyres possible, that would probably be the ultimate sort of combination to cycle across Antarctica. So you've got the flotation and basically better grip. Um, the technology works incredibly well. Like a lot of people will think when I explain it that it might be harder to push or um, is it just a gimmick, but I'm not kidding. Um, like the first one we tested in uh, Svalbard, it wasn't the best bike because we could only have a four-inch wide tyre, which isn't maximum, um, but it seemed worthwhile. And basically how it works is that when the back wheel slips, the front wheel engages, so I don't – even though it looks like it's working, it's not really driving until it, it's really needed. And so it's, there's kind of like a, a differential sort of inbuilt into the system. It's very, very clever. So it's, it's, it works incredibly efficiently. Um, so when the back wheel slips, the front wheel engages, and vice versa, when the front wheel slips, the back's got plenty of grip. So um, it's not going to be like make all of the difference, but if it helps me 5% or 10%, that's amazing because, you know, I'm going to be pushing to my absolute extremes here and so let's make it as easy as possible. Um, the bike's also very good. I'm not a downhiller, but I believe that, that for cornering, going downhills and things, if, if you're pedaling, pushing out of a corner, it's, it's incredibly good for grip as well. Um, so basically with each expedition, so that's uh, Svalbard, which is uh, Norwegian islands to the north of Norway, northeast Greenland, no one's ever cycled there before. Uh, Arctic Canada right up uh, in the Yukon, in the, in going over the, the, the Arctic Ocean, um, and then in Iceland. So I've trialled four different bikes, and each one's been improved a little bit, a little bit better efficiency, just a little tiny design features improved. I mean, I pulled out my um, number four, the, the one I'm going to use in Antarctica. I'll use three and four in Antarctica, but number four the other day because I just needed to pull it, pull it out for a photo shoot. and. I ride it up and down the road, and apart from from having studs in the tyres, which made an awful noise, um, it was just so smooth, and it's it's it, it's unbelievably efficient. Like it's incredible. So, um, you know, we put pretty good components on it and all that kind of thing. But you know, um, 
there's no risk involved in this either. If anyone's sort of thinking, oh, what happens if it breaks down? Um, I can just switch it off. You can fl flick it on or off as you need it. So, so I, it, it just behaves like a normal bike. So it, in every single way, it behaves like a normal bike. It adds 1.3 pounds to the weight of the bike. So it's actually not significant in my situation. Um, so it's a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned. And, I mean, Steve is just passionate about, as an engineer, and about, um, well, he loves bikes the most. His business is actually being founded now on motocross. But um, but when I gave him the opportunity to make a bike, he just took it on himself, not 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 the whole business, just him. And now that's actually created a small business again for him in bicycles. So, um, you know, it, there's so much trust in our relationship because I've never met him face-to-face. -face. He's in Philadelphia. I'm, I'm in Melbourne. Um, we just, he just loved the challenge and, and, and he's a genius as far as I'm concerned. So, um, you know, it's, it's specific, has specific needs. He's building a bike for my needs and, you know, for the average person who wants to do a little bit of mountain biking here and there, then it's still got its uses, but, but, you know, trying to build over, you know, a 5.05 inch wide tire, so a 13 centimeter wide tire, that's been the challenge because all the drive angles have to be precise um, and and it's a pretty snappy piece of engineering. So I, I feel like it's a real privilege to actually have it and, and, and my bike, my house is sort of filled with bikes. <laughs> so um, the one he's made for South America is, is a plus size mountain bike, so 27.5 inch wide tire, sorry, um, diameter tires. And um, um, what I needed in South America, because the plan was to cycle up some sandy, gravelly, remote uh, tracks up the high, some of the highest volcanoes in the world, finishing on the highest volcano in the world, and I wanted to see how high I could go. So if I can get a bit better grip uh, in these situations, great. And, and if it's not needed, well, there's nothing lost. So he's built me a, a plus-size mountain bike, uh, which has been featured in the um, Cycling Tips and uh, the Ian's article. And uh, look, it's it's unbelievably smooth. So um, you know, it's it's he's you know built sort of little lugs on it so that I can carry some weight when I've needed to carry weight. Um, uh, I've used 3.25 inch wide tyres because I didn't really need them on the journey that I had at that point, but it was for later on. So I was building the bike for the most difficult situations that I was expecting to face on the journey, which was especially climbing Oyas del Salado at the finish, which is the world's highest volcano. Yeah, so when you when you go on these expeditions, it's how many, roughly, uh, kilometers do you ride a day? Ah, well, that depends on the terrain. And so, for example, down the Skeleton Coast, um, you know, I'm going into relentless headwinds, the whole consistent, like unbelievable headwinds on the beach. On the beach isn't so bad, but when the tide comes in, then I had to ride on the soft sand. So all what I was planning to ride was 50 kilometres a day on that, which was actually at the start was so horrific. It, it took all of eight hours, but um, seven and a half hours, and that was killing me because I was just, just starting out and getting fit at the same time. Um, so from that extreme to... Um, at altitude again, that cut my distances down because you know at 
at, at 4,000 metres, I'm breathing in about 13% oxygen rather than 20, almost 21%. Um, so that was really restricting me there. But say, for example, in South America, I was, average, I was knocking off 110 kilometres a day, uh, 100 kilometres a day after a few days. But on the, my fourth day, I had to cycle over 5,000 metres and I mean, I'm sure I did about 60 kilometers, whatever. So it just depends on the situation. If I was touring and I had moderate bags, I used to generally on a normal mountain bike cycle at, with bags about 130 on average, 120 to 140, whatever. Um, it, it, it's all about um, – it depends how long I'm doing this for, and you know. So, you know, if I'm cycling for ten months, I'm, it's it's about managing my energy systems, and it's about you know the the project as a whole. You know, you could do a bit more if, each day or whatever, but then after a month, you're going to be exhausted. You can't blow out. So, it's kind of pacing everything. And that's probably my biggest skill, I believe, to make sure that I get to the finish and deliver what I'm planning to do. Cycling is obviously a big part of it, but there are often other things that I'm doing as well. I'm often up till late at night, writing diaries, communicating. There's a lot of other things going on there as well. So, um, you know, it depends whether I'm supported or unsupported. Um, it doesn't make that much difference in the distance, to be honest. I might go a little bit slower from carrying weight, but but just stay on the bike a bit longer. Um, but, but all these things, if I'm carrying weight up mountains, that's a different thing that, that's harder or, or on soft sand. So it just depends, you know, if we're filming it, sometimes that takes time. It just depends on the situation. Yeah, for sure. What, how long um, is each expedition roughly and what's the longest one been? Um, well, again, each expedition is designed to tell specific stories. So the mm -hmm. ones that I'm known, the longest in time was breaking the cycle in Africa, which was 10 months. In fact, I arrived four days ahead of schedule after 10 months, and that was 22,040 kilometers. Um, and we were also filming. Uh, so that was you know, a massive, just, just not just the cycling, but actually even because I needed a, needed a support vehicle for that journey to do the filming, then it was man it's, it's kind of managing the team. It's managing all these things. I'm out there on the bicycle, and you've got, Maybe sometimes in a the vehicle they're a bit bored or whatever, or you know, there's different personalities, and it was that was actually the toughest part of it. Um, so that's the longest. Um, Australia was longer in distance; that was just under 25,000 kilometres, uh, and that was nine and a half months. Uh, Russia was 13,386 kilometres, and that was one day finishing a day ahead of schedule after five months. And that included like going through fifteen hundred kilometers of swamp. Um, a swamp where I had to follow the railway line. <laughs> so, um, uh, so the railway line was kind of like what we'd, we'd followed for navigation, but also when when there were little winter tracks along the side, and when they were underwater or there was a, a river. Uh, we had to basically go up on the railway line. So probably push the bike about 100 kilometres along, along the railway line. Um, mm -hmm. And the rest of it was like muddy tracks and 
forestry tracks and a great adventure. <laughs> um, so that was so that's five months. These other ones, it, it totally depends. Uh, Antarctica would be a couple of months. Um, it depends on the intensity. Um, the ones I've been doing on each continent are supposed to be smaller, except the South American one was meant to be eight weeks, um, six weeks for uh, Namibia going the entire coast. We actually, I actually did it, though, in um, – I think it was 26 days of cycling and 32 days all up. Um, so I did it faster than I thought, but you know I'd plan I'd planned for um, no roads the whole way, and I got some roads at a few points. So that sped things up. Um, yeah. So and then others around a month. The the smallest, but not necessarily easiest, was in Australia. Um, along the Fink River, which is the world's oldest river, or part of it is. It's been there for 320 million years, part of it. And uh, it cuts through the centre of Australia. It was, um, you know, there used to be mountains there that were as high as the Himalayas, and now Australia's uh, pretty low. So there's just like this incredible, just prehistoric gorges, and then it sort of like, starts uh, a little bit about 130 kilometers west of Alice Springs uh, in the center and it kind of winds through. It was only 524 kilometers to a town called Fink as well, um, 13 days. But my God, that's the roughest expedition I've ever done. And I was just following the river. There's not road. I wasn't following the roads. Um, this river just meanders through the the outback and it's just timeless and um, it was a gem uh, of, an, of an expedition but I was for the first bit through the gorges there was also like I just total for many kilometers beds of stones big stones and my poor fat bike was just and me was getting shaken about and then the, the sand is soft <laughs> so um, it, it was physically tough I, I built it up to 50 kilometers a day, which is what I was aiming. And after a few days, I was getting to that, um, and then a bit more. Um, but but it was it was it was yeah, it was a special one. And that's I guess the nice thing about fat bikes is that that's what they're built for to go to places where there aren't roads and things. Um, um, and and this was an endurance. Like I was still cycling seven hours a day, probably on these stones and things. So it was. Um, it was very cool. Though. It was an amazing place. Yeah, you've mentioned now three uh, terrain options that I would steer away from on my road bike. Yeah. Soft sand, swamp, and stones. <laughs> um, <laughs> so when you're well, planning these expeditions... No. Yeah, if I got a, if I had a fat bike, it would maybe be different. I mean, I know. So my fiance is from Latvia, and when they train in the winter, it's really cold. So they usually ride mountain bikes, and they'll ride it on the beach um, because the waves come up and pack the sand down, and they're able to ride along the beach. Um, so hard pack sand, sure. Loose sand, I've tried to run through it. Not easy. <laughs> well, not. It just takes a different mindset, and I, I love that um because like i don't know when you're out in the road and you've got miles and miles and miles and you just see this road in front of you and i've done a lot of that too it's like <laughs> sometimes that's a real mental 
challenge, or it's just about always a mental challenge. But if you're in the surfaces where you don't know what's next and you're constantly having to analyze the sand or the snow or the mud mm -hmm. or whatever, and you're always analyzing, so you're just so busy working, it's really working out your path and your route. And, and, and every single pedal stroke is a little bit different. So you're always in cores working really hard. It's a different type of cycling. Um, but once you get your head around that, like, um, I don't know, I just absolutely love that, that, that challenge of, of how do I get through this bit? You know, I'm never thinking, oh, this is going to stop me. I'm going, oh, how do I, how do I do that? How do I get through there? Which the and I always get to the other end, and I'm thinking, hmm, that was a, you know, I feel very satisfied. Uh, That's awesome. Um, I think probably most expeditions are a bit of a mix of both, though. It's not always, to be honest, it's not always like that. But they're the things I remember the most. Um, <laughs> you know, when I was cycling around Australia on the on the bitumen roads, you know, I was I was doing a bit more than my average, you know. Crossing the Nullarbor. I mean, crossing the Nullarbor is not hard. It's it's long and straight, um, and I had headwinds a lot. But um, you know, it's kind of like you've got to be aware of the traffic. <laughs> um, it's not like when you get off the main road in Australia, which is which is a just a totally different thing. Uh, and no, yeah, it's it's a mix because it's, it's how the world fits together, and you know whether it's. Dirt, you know, when you're off the road, it gives you a sense of the real environment there. But I also love rolling down the tarmac as well. You know, um, mm -hmm. I have one road bike looking at me right now, which is <clears throat> the one I bought when I was living in France um, back in the early 2000s, uh, and bought it in Fontainebleau. It has it looks like it was made in Andorra. So work that out. Nice. Um, it's got a slight crack in the head tube. Um, so it's not – I shouldn't really – I actually wrote it outside, you know, for a couple of years with a crack in the head tube. didn't seem to get bigger. But now it's, I've just got a, an indoor trainer. So in this COVID situation, I, I've mm. stuck it on an indoor trainer and it's a good use of it. Um, it's a nice bike. I, I don't, I'm not against road bikes either. I like them <laughs> just for, for doing what I want to do and to tell my stories. I just try and choose the right bike for the situation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you mentioned um, that there's other things going on with each expedition, and each expedition has a story to tell. Um, you link each one with a project. Mm -hmm. Not to not to sound, I don't know what the word would be, but why not just ride? Why do you link each expedition with something, with kind of a bigger picture? Because for many reasons, um, I guess I'm a real believer in using my skills to make the world a better place. And, and I have a lot of skills in terms of being able to not just ride, I'm not the fastest rider in the world, but I, I have skills in also storytelling and I, I have a lot of other skills and, and in education. And um, what, just after I um, finished, or sort of ridden through Europe and I was planning this journey across Russia, I met um, a fellow who inspired me very much, a polar explorer, and whose name is Robert Swan, first person to have walked to both the North and South Poles. And I was telling him about this Russian expedition. And, you know, he's done a bit of cycling himself. 
And he said, that's great, but when you're traveling through these places, people say, well, what are you doing with all this? Well, you can say bike, but actually I'm also, you know, it's such a privilege to travel through their land, so I've always, and, and meet the people, and I, so I've always tried to benefit the people and places that I travel through since then. Robert really inspired that to start with, but now I can see the big picture of, of look, you know, why not share what you know and what you are good at to yeah to make the world a better place so um uh that's that's how it started so russia i chose to support the children affected by the chernobyl disaster and and at that stage i raised this was pre-internet and all that sort of thing and i raised funds for that and went back to um minsk in belarus and around there and, and saw where that money went um australia was about education for sustainable development just when not that many people really understood about what sustainability meant. Obviously, it's a, it's a normal word now, but it wasn't then. And and so I created an education program for that. Um, UNESCO took it on uh, as an official activity for their decade of education for sustainable development, as was Africa. Um, Africa is also about telling a story and exploring the causes and effects of extreme poverty and specifically what's been done to give a leg up rather than a handout. So um, the way I worked that, I, I planned the route to um, across through this, or if I ex explain maybe how I started um, getting the idea, and that was that I was looking at a map of Africa and education, and I could see the countries most in need of improved education was basically at the base of the Sahara from west to east, basically the Sahara region. And I looked at that and then I realized um, the reasons why the education was such an issue and it was totally and inextricably uh, linked to the causes and effects of uh, extreme poverty, so all of them. And so that's how I got my plan, but also the route. So that's, and then I hooked up with 10 different projects, oh, 10 different organizations and 15 different projects during the journey to actually tell the story. So the cycling gives a great grounded um, story. You know, we're always very connected with the land and the people. And, and so I, I could tell the story of the real Africa. But I knew that the, 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 the problems were much more complex um, than I could understand from just cycling through. So by... By, by meeting all these different projects, I actually got to meet people and got to meet and understand the situations um, in much more depth. Not not in total depth, but but it enabled me to tell the story that I wanted to tell because it worked. Um, uh, so I sort of had all the main causes mapped out, um, including catching up with World Bicycle Relief uh, in Zambia. So I saw three of their projects and, and that they were a partner. Um, and, and, and many others, some smaller, some some larger. So so that was the, the plan, and um, that's how that worked out. It was kind of using those skills of cycling and and the virtues of cycling, traveling by bicycle, and to really understand how 20 countries in that continent fit together. There's, there's actually 54 yeah. countries, but at least 20 of them I visited. Um, and including war-torn countries and all, you know all sorts of things, so it was quite a privilege. Um, and then uh, with with uh, Antarctica, it, it's still about education. So I've set up my own breaking the cycle education um, 
the African journey is called Breaking the Cycle in Africa, and ever since then I've used that name, Breaking the Cycle, to for my education program, and, and so it's linked. I'm building that program myself now um, and have big plans for it. Yeah. Um, what What is Breaking the Cycle? Well, it's a bit of a play on words, obviously. So, so there's, there's obviously, when I was think, thinking about Africa, it was breaking the cycle of poverty versus breaking the cyclist, pretty much. Cause it was, <laughs> um, and, and so it just, it was like a light bulb moment. And then, then after that expedition, I thought, well, that still applies. It still applies because that's where I want to go. That's what I want, you know, if I can uh, contribute to tell stories, to improve understanding about um, about uh, poverty, not just poverty, but 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 how to break the cycle. You know, all these things we hear these bad, these bad news all the time. And this is about breaking that cycle as well. So whether it's poverty, whether it's improving the environment, um, whether it's equality, it doesn't matter. It's breaking the cycle. We've got to break it. Yeah. And so it's just a great to me. I'll keep, I'll hang on to that name now because everything it, it seems to work with what I stand for and and um and what I'm doing. So, going back to the expeditions a little bit, mm-hmm. what is the planning process for each one? How does how does it start? What's the spark? And then how do you move forward and get all the way to getting flying there and getting on the bike and mm-hmm. getting it done? It's that's a very good question because I don't just pull ideas out of the thin air. Um, I guess with each expedition, I it changes you a little bit in one way or another. And there, there are certainly places that I'm attracted to, and and so I sort of once I get an idea, I'll hang on to it for quite a while. I'll I'll, I'll think about it. I'll think because I need to make sure that these things take my so I can't just like just do an expedition for the sake of doing it. It's got to come from much deeper than that for me. So they're all expressions of me and what I want to learn, I guess. And and they've all got to have something original or unique in them, pretty much. They've got to have. I've got to be very clear about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it before I can enter into the next phase, which is trying to uh, put that all on paper and organise it. And sell it to potential sponsors. That's the that's that's the hardest thing, actually. Um, you know, uh, that's why I haven't been to Antarctica yet because it's it's the hardest thing is actually finding enough funding to do it. I can do, mm-hmm. I've got skills, I believe, and I've got I've got the team. I've got all of those things. I know what to do. Um, it would just be once I get the go ahead with the right support, then then I can fine tune it those little things and and make them you know get myself ready within four months it could be done um so it's just um spending a lot of time to get to this to actually making the decision that that's exactly what i'm doing and then once i i feel right then i and and then i've also kind of mitigated you know thought about the potential risks and what's realistic um and i i'm I'm putting all that together in a marketable story, like I, I actually always think of the story. So some of these things are world firsts in, in different ways, whether it's the Fink River, no one's done that before, or whether it's the Skeleton Coast, no one's done that whole journey before. Um, 
It's the same with the Africa, west to east. No one's done that. But it doesn't have to be a world first. It, it could be like, for example, my last journey through the Indian Himalaya, where I was also had um, another cause. In, in we, we, I, I joined another expedition in the middle to bring light um, to a 1,100-year-old village. That's a cool thing to do too. It doesn't have to be a world first. Um, so it just there needs to be something that I really believe in that I'm, I'm cycling for. Um, and I'm always getting ideas, and I've got a lot in my head. Um, uh, but I'm not particularly interested in racing. It's not a bad thing to do, but it's just not my thing. Um, I work hard, but I'm not going it, to – it's not what I'm about. It's about using, you know, all of these – using all of these skills to really create something meaningful and making a difference. How long does it take to – plan and how long do you have in between each expedition uh it, it varies a lot it, you know to do the, the very long ones like russia or australia or um or africa i mean they're major things where i actually have to they're major upheavals because i've had to leave my job and everything you know um and so they're different um and the more complex the longer it takes pretty much so to give you an idea but Russia had to be done in a certain in in the summer and believe it or not that only took four months to plan whereas Australia took uh, I thought about it for years but but actually it was uh, six months of serious planning a bit more mm-hmm. by the time you know but that six months of hard work uh, Africa took uh, 18 months or 12 months, doesn't matter. It was a long time and it was intense yeah. and it nearly killed me. So in the end I had I found 30 different sponsors. I had 10 different partners. I had a, I had a education program. I had to find teammates that came from the UK and Australia to, to film it and I was exhausted at the start. Um, but then just get fit on the way. That's the way to do it. Um, and then... Um, um, Antarctica is different again because I had to upskill first to understand how to deal with the cold, um, and and there's always new technology there, so I'm always trying to sort of keep abreast of that. But I, being here, I can't really train that easily um, in terms of mm-hmm. the cold. But I kind of know where I'm at. So once once now, if I knew I was doing it um, in 2021, uh, which is the plan. You know, if, if I knew a year out, I could make the whole thing really amazing and, and I could put it together in four months, but um, the rest of it is actually trying to keep expedition fit. So all these other expeditions are keeping the expedition fit and, and yeah, stopping me from getting soft, <laughs> um, sitting and <laughs> um, drinking too many nice coffees and things. Um, so, uh, yeah, th- they also serve that purpose. Um, so it just depends on the complexity uh, it depends on the timing because mostly these have to time with the right seasons. Uh, the, all these factors have to be pulled together. Um, uh, the Skeleton Coast was, even though it was a training expedition, it was I consider it a big one because it was a, it was really special. It was still six six weeks or so, probably eight weeks by the time I left work and got back again. Um, so it's quite an upheaval, but luckily I have a job that allows me to 
do that, although I, I can't just go, I've got to organize it. Um, uh, so it, those are more manageable because uh, because I, I can keep my job, but I have an income at the other end. Um, I think I think Skeleton Coast took six months. No, well, it was a year, a year, but really six months of intense organisation. There's a lot of permits that, like, probably there are some of my other good skills was to actually to to be able to negotiate these permits, which normally aren't given, and and have a, a, you know we've got blank nose. Um, there's a diamond mining area that's totally locked to the outside world that have found a way through. Um, so all those things, you know, th there's lots of uncertainties, lots of stress to organise them, so they've got to be worth it. So that's why I'm saying I spend so long at the start to make sure it's what I really want to do and, and that it's what is its purpose. Um, and I have to have all those things clear before because when you get tested and, you know, you're cycling into relentless winds in the sand, uh, it's foggy, misty, whatever it is, it's, it's, it's tough. So if you don't have in your mind um, the clear purpose of what you're doing, then it would be hard to have the right resilience, you know, in, in those sort of situations. So um, that's what I'm saying. I don't just reel them off. I couldn't just reel them off just, just for the sake of, you know, doing a lap of a swimming pool, you know, just from going from A to B, it's got to be a proper story and, and, and good motives to do it that, that I can yeah. crack into. Yeah, and, and the multiple of your expeditions have um, stories that come out of it in the form of books. You've written two books, or the Africa has a documentary, the Skeleton Coast has things in the works i don't know if i can mention those i can cut that out no, just, um, i'm pretty i'm so excited about going. and and what you're working on in the future also has um you you went to south america with the film with someone to film it and um and antarctica is also planned to be filmed correct mm -hmm. so there's a there's also People can people can interact with your stories because absolutely really important and um, yeah I guess you know when I first cycled through Europe sure I loved taking photographs yeah and, and I wanted to show and tell people the big step up was going through Russia yes we filmed uh, Greg Yeoman the British guy who came with me you know we, we did film twenty four hours worth of footage it's quite interesting but it wasn't professionally done um, and, and Australia again. You know, all those things cost money. Like, like to do the exhibition costs X to, to actually have people to come along and film it, or if it has to be supported, that's way more complex and costs four times as much or whatever. So, um, so that's actually harder, like, to make happen. Um, but you know, my my point is to be able to uh, inspire other people and to educate other people. And if I don't have the quality materials, you can't go very far with it, I don't think. So that's why I've invested in um, in filming things. Um, and, you know, even for me, just to film, like to get the confidence to go on camera, like at the start, you know, as cyclists, we get down, you put your head down, you focus on that, and you, you're focusing on going forwards and what's ahead of you and the positives, you know. And, and often when you see films, people are – saying how hard it is and what's stopping you and they nearly want to give up. And it's kind of like 
I've never wanted to give up, but but somehow I have to be able to articulate, find that that, that medium of articulating between what's um, what's tough. How do you articulate that to the audience? What are the what am I thinking? And, and so I've had to come out of myself a bit more to be able to present a genuine story. Um, and and that's what I'm over the years gradually getting better at. So it was it was tough at the start, but but I have persisted because I think it's really important to have a record. You know, you can do these wonderful things, and that's a nice personal thing. But to be able to share it, you've got to actually be able to record it. And you know, um, with Australia, I wrote my first after after Russia. I missed the opportunity to write a book. There's a great story there. I was I was young. I was based in the UK. Um, I ended up with a ghostwriter. It just didn't work. And so I missed that opportunity. So I always regretted that. So with my Australian exhibition afterwards, I just said, no, I'm writing it myself. I've got some advice. And I sat down. And it took me two years to produce that book. So I was sure I'd do a nine-and-a-half-month expedition, spend however long it was, a year setting it up. That's, a, that's already a long time. But then it was two years to, to publish my first book. And then with Africa, it took four years to get a film and a book out. So that forces me to revisit everything. I'm always very good at recording things at the time, but it forces me to analyze everything. And then it actually helps me also to go forwards. So, um, so that, you know, <laughs> the book, all those things, you know, I've had to learn. It's not like, okay, I'm a good cyclist. It's actually a good cyclist who now has to, Get it's not just average. You've actually got to be really good at these things. Otherwise, it doesn't work. <laughs> you you won't get published or you won't get it seen. And it's been a long struggle and a, a, of learning how to do those things. I mean, uh, photographs I love taking. That's fine. Um, but but yeah, it's just uh, it's like conducting an orchestra. Like you're putting all these things together. Um, and so the film, you know, Njinga, the film about Africa. Actually won some awards, but then it's been a long struggle with trying to – the filmmakers based in Ireland, and he wanted to make a series out of it. He's – I did the voiceovers in 2016. Uh, uh, you know, I'm so upset and disappointed because it's still coming. He just ran short of money. Next time I've got to take this under my own control again. Um, and so with uh, The Skeleton Coast – Smaller journey, but great story. Um, not writing a book about this, but uh, I, I have a good adventure filmmaker with me, um, and and he's he's we've got the materials, the stories there between us. We've pulled the story out. Um, the film, the feature film, eighty minute feature film is. Um, we're just changing narrators, otherwise it's finished. That got seen by a UK producer. And now we're making a four-part series. How exciting is that? <laughs> so, so it's like finally, maybe you know, all this experience of it's not even just making the film; it's actually making the film and getting it to market. That's you know, there's all these processes. It's not just good enough to, you know, one thing is cycling it, or one thing is to imagine it and have the vision. One thing is to actually pull the expedition off, and then all these other struggles come into play. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm learning still.
So the easiest part is actually cycling, the riding of the bike. <laughs> that's, the, that's the pure joy. So your question, why don't you just cycle? Sometimes I think, I don't know. <laughs> I wish I did. Yeah. <laughs> but actually my motivations for doing these things are so much that actually it's really important to hang on to those and to be able to to share them. Otherwise they get lost and, and, and they shouldn't be because there's a value to all of those things. Do you have a favorite story that you tell at parties? Oh, God. Parties? I don't know what parties are in COVID. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, at pre-COVID parties. <laughs> Pre-COVID parties. <laughs> I don't know. The thing is, I, I, with my, I, as a, my other job as a real tennis professional, I, this is like my other family, um, real tennis, or it's known as court tennis in the U.S., and this is, it's a small little world. It's about 12,000 people in the world that play. And I have, I work with four other guys who are like my best friends, and they're sick of my stories. They want to know anymore. <laughs> um, they do really, but but it's like, give us the short version. I'm trying to think what is the story. I've not answered your question. I I don't know. You told me one. You told me one about riding through Somalia in a war zone. Oh yeah, that was just crazy. To that's I mean, uh, what a yeah, which that was. <laughs> You've mentioned if you are riding with sort of uh, two bulletproof vehicles and uh, a full military unit, which includes uh, I think there was eleven soldiers, so it's a driver, a gunner, and eight soldiers, and another one there, so the commander. Um, <clears throat> so that was back in. I mean, I've done a couple of times with um, in that African expedition. Uh, uh, they said I needed uh, military support. So it's, it's kind of this weird feeling when you're on a bicycle pedaling along. You just find a little way to pedal a little bit faster. <laughs> <laughs> just like a little bit extra motivation. <laughs> but um, I was kind of on a, on a high because I was traveling across what to Australians would recognize as something like the Nullarbor Plain, I guess, that going out to the most easterly tip in Africa through Somalia, so um, uh, the only safe route was with the government and the government's support. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been allowed into the country um, to cross the borders. You know, they pulled out all stops because they wanted a positive story to come out of their country, especially Puntland, but also Somaliland. Um, So, you know, crossing over through no man's lands, like it was major negotiations and all the clans had to be um, uh, uh, consulted and there was just one day when I was allowed to go through a no man's land between Somaliland and Puntland and there's all these checkpoints and here's my little old me on a bicycle and there's all these guns everywhere and people I didn't know what you know. so you just have to kind of like trust in yourself and stand tall not look scared and uh, just look more like stand tall and look at them in the eye and the right type of smile is important um, um, and then you know, and then traveling through um, from Puntland, which is like a state of Somalia where the, where the most easterly tip is, for the last seven days, starting from you know, the pre- firstly the president of Puntland uh, loaned us his very own guards to get through the first two days. So we had his guards, so that's a full military unit and two bulletproof vehicles. Um, and then we like there was a lot of security, so we couldn't tell people no emails, no phone calls, 
nothing like that where we're going because Al Shabab could, um, well, they could listen in on those. So, so there was even the government, apart from the president and a couple of ministers, no one else knew. The interior minister knew. That was it. Like I met all these people, and and so we go up the main road, and then the last um, just under four hundred kilometres. So three days. I was just across tracks, and and they had uh, intelligence. They had military intelligence from the CIA and locally coming in because there was a conflict going on at the time, and we were right on the doorstep. Um, uh, and there was a point, the first of those three days cross, I actually covered 190 kilometres on, on uh, rubbish. <laughs> so apart from the first 16 kilometres, the rest was – rubbish <laughs> uh, yeah. and had a bit of a tailwind for some of it but it was like <laughs> um, we're just going to little villages and suddenly you imagine what it must be like for them they're living in poverty and they're living in little huts and things and suddenly there's like two bulletproof vehicles a military unit and me on a bicycle rolling in <laughs> they make us a cup of tea and we roll out again <laughs> <laughs> it's very that's so crazy most beautiful people like they're just normal people like they're everywhere else and yeah especially the women that they their reactions was they were just awesome they were all like they were just so excited and then at the end of that towards the end of that day we were going to uh, arrive at a certain village and they were they'd already caught a goat for us they were going to kill the goat you know kill the goat and have a big feast and they got intelligence, they got a message about three kilometres out that some Al-Shabaab fighters gone there to, to, and they were hiding there. They were there that, so all of a sudden, they didn't tell us that, but then suddenly we changed direction and went through a, even a smaller, so we couldn't go to that. But that's why I did 190 kilometres, cycling in the dark in the sand <laughs> through the middle of Somalia and just wondering, where are we going? <laughs> um, so that's where we just had to have a lot of trust. It was also Ramadan. So the soldiers hadn't eaten or anything till dark. And as soon as it's dark, they just stop and have a drink, <laughs> you know, water. And then they hadn't eaten properly because those soldiers had been fighting before they came to me. And, you know, it, it was just this amazing thing. But the soldiers were beautiful. They were human. They were just normal people. Um, uh, uh, and, then, and then basically, yeah, the next day I did 120 maybe, something like that. And the final day was just 70, but the final day was normal fat, normal bike, but, you know, through sand and, and this little peninsula and then up onto a tabletop mountain to the to the tip. So, And there we met up with just before so this this peninsula of Hathwood, and it's like only a kilometre wide, um, jutting out into the Indian Ocean. And, and there's, a, there's a village there that goes back to uh, ancient times called Hathwood. It was wiped out by the tsunami, the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004, but they rebuilt, and like the mayor and the, you know, it's just, it was incredible history. You know, they used to trade with Indonesia, you know, in, uh, thousands of years ago, you know, um, and here I was cycling through Nolan Dev, that's what we know is no one cycled to the most easterly tip before because the elders then know, and you can't pass that village without, Going to go to the tip because it's so narrow, narrow. So they would know, and there's no real roads, just a little track up there. Um, so 
it was very cool. The elders came out and led us up to the to this tip. There's an old Italian lighthouse at the finish. I was pretty excited by then. And my bike was falling apart. I had um, uh, managed that they tried to make this road, and it just it split the rim of my bike. It was just this, just a few rocks, and my bike had had it. And I realised the bike, the rim had split, but it was still holding together, and I had a slow puncture. So I was just every so often, every few kilometres, pumping up my tyre because I I didn't have anything left for that last bit. And then I oh dear. the mountain, like the final mountain, it didn't matter. I just didn't care. And the last two kilometres, it's just like it's so desolate that the um, there are th- only thorn bushes that grow flat because it's so windy. They don't even grow high. They're just just thorny ground cover and that's it and a few goats <laughs> and I'm just like pushing my bike the last two kilometers and that was very cool so I, I don't know if I, my my friends probably wouldn't last that long me telling that story but yeah, <laughs> it was pretty good so for people who want to follow you and keep track of your future endeavors and everything that's going on um and hopefully COVID doesn't impede your your Antarctica trip. Um, how can they follow you? Yeah, they can go to um, just my website. They can contact me from that. And the website's breaking the cycle, or one word dot education. So breaking the cycle dot education. Um, you can also find me on Facebook and Twitter and everything else. But but if if they just go to that, they you can say so you can follow what I do. My blogs are on there. Um, all of my expeditions information about all of those. My books. Uh, the education aspect is really also been opening up since um, COVID, and and I'm soon going to have this um, interactive education program through an organisation called Beluga, and that'll all be happening in the next month or two. Uh, so, so COVID closes some doors and opens others. That's what I say. So, yes. whether, you know, not even trying to go to Antarctica at the end of this year is just not likely. I've, I, you know, I have to wait till next year, um, but I'm trying to make it happen. So, um, awesome. uh, if it doesn't, I've still got some other ideas that are stored away in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you've got a lot of a lot of potential expeditions floating yeah. around. But um, yeah, it, it's good to. Um, I don't know, with the cycling tips audience, which I think are generally in the past been mostly road cycling, it's good to, I mean, I embrace that fully myself, but but I don't know, these days my adventures have sent me in another direction, but, um, you know, we all cycle for good reasons and good causes, and if they're clear in our minds, then, then we can do it. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for, for the time, and I can't wait to watch what you, what you do next. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> <laughs>